Welcome to the OI Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Townsend, and uh, I thought it had to be a host. It had to be a host. It must have been scary for people. In 2016, I came across an album called The Flood by an English group called The Liar Ensemble. And I found the sounds they made on the replica of this ancient lyre completely captivating. They brought to mind a fantasy of a distant past. The simplicity of the instrument inspires us to speculate on what the music of the ancient world might have sounded like, even though we have very little evidence to guide our understanding as to how ancient musicians constructed scales or tuned strings. I recently sat down with members of the Lyre Ensemble, including Andy Lowings, who was inspired by then-recent events to recreate this ancient instrument. It was April the 10th, 2003. I remember that date. I was looking at a, a magazine cover, and on the front of it, there was this um, uh, image from about 2000 BC. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to have a look at what this harpist was actually playing? And so I thought to do a little bit of research on the internet, I discovered that there was this lovely cache of instruments uh, that had been found by archaeologists in Ur. And uh, this has just become more and more interesting. I looked at the beauty of these instruments. I wondered whether we could perhaps recreate one just as a, as a hobby. I was standing in the kitchen talking to my wife and I said, um, I think I've got to do this project. It's a fun thing to do, to recreate this gold lyre and the best of them all, there were several found in, in the graves. Um, why don't we do the Baghdad uh, lyre, the gold lyre? And it would be a fun project um, to do in our spare time. And she said, well, funny you should say that. I've never heard of these gold lyres from Baghdad Museum, but it was on the BBC News just earlier this morning to say that they, the museum had been ransacked and the gold lyre of had been vandalized. Between April 10th and April 12th, 2003, in the wake of the invasion of Iraq, the Baghdad Museum was looted. The lyre was torn apart, the gold removed. Thankfully, many pieces were recovered. Today, a restored lyre is on view in the Baghdad Museum. Inspired by the image of the lyre and the recent destruction at the Baghdad Museum, Andy enlisted the help of his friend Jennifer Sturdy. Together, they set out on a journey to reconstruct the four and a half millennia old instrument and to make music on it. Andy has always been one for slightly offbeat and crazy ideas. Yeah, I'm a civil engineer and I'm a project manager. So I've, I've had some wonderful um, jobs in my life uh, over in the Middle East, working with uh, Sheikh in Dubai for eight years, um, Channel Tunnel, project management. I'm not really a musician beyond playing a, a sort of uh, sitting room harp. We are school friends. We are 
friends from secondary school. I'm a secondary school teacher by background um, for languages. I was always, um, I played the piano um, up to quite an advanced level. I've always been very interested in music and I've always supported people in musical projects. Perhaps one of my attributes is um, organizational skills and sort of finding out where we should do the research and which books we should buy and um, that kind of thing. And so together we made quite a good team. We were very fortunate at the very early stages to be invited to a conference in Berlin about ancient Near Eastern archaeology. And uh, the first thing that happened when we said, well, we're going to try and make a playable replica of the very earliest known harp. And they said, well, it isn't actually it's a harp, it's a lyre. The essential difference be between a harp and a lyre being that on a lyre, all the strings are of the same length, whereas on a harp, they're of different lengths and also they go straight into the sound box. So that was the first error that we made, was calling it a harp. We called it the harp of Ur, but it is, of course, a lyre, the lyre of Ur. We went to the British Museum, who've been very supportive throughout the entire project, I should say, and they very kindly gave us access to Sir Leonard Woolley's field notes. And that's when we started to first find out where exactly in Iraq the uh, graves were located. Though lyres frequently appear in Mesopotamian art, evidence in the form of complete surviving instruments have so far only been found at the site of Ur, though fragments of lyres may have been unearthed in other locations. The legendary excavations at Ur from 1922 to 1934, led by Sir Leonard Woolley, were a joint project of the British Museum and the University of Pennsylvania Museum. The cemetery excavations captivated the public, thanks in part to the spectacular finds of objects that included lyres, other musical instruments such as a flute and cymbals, jewelry, statues, and the royal standard of Ur. This is one of the most famous sketches of when he opened the very largest grave, and you can see that there are bodies of women lying in very neat rows in this grave. And on the left-hand corner there, the sketch of the lyres that they found, and the largest lyre you can see with the bull's head on it is the gold bull's-headed lyre. There was also a silver lyre you can see just above it, and another lyre and some silver pipes and various instruments found in this grave. It is an enormous mystery as to why all these people appeared, all these women, 68 women, appeared to voluntarily go to their deaths. When Sir Leonard Woolley opened the grave, one of the things that he commented on, which I find intensely moving, is that he found the bones of the hand of the last lyre player, a woman, lying across her instrument. So it would appear that she played right up until the moment of her death. So I find this a very uh, dramatic drawing um, showing what, uh, what was found in the grave. One of his very early photographs, which again, you can see very clearly, uh, what was found. So the metal, the silver, the gold, and the stone work were all there intact. Obviously, all organic material uh, was long gone, but he was very pleased that to find it in such an amazing state, pressed down under the earth for all those years. On the smaller lie on the left-hand side, which is the silver lie, you can see a little row of tuning pegs at the top and they were covered in silver and so therefore it was 
very um, helpful to see those in position and to see how they were um, lined up. Just an amazingly moving picture, I think. Um, and this is the replica, well, um, the, the, the wooden part is the replica of the finished uh, lyre, which was taken to the National Museum of Baghdad. And this is one that Andy was referring to and said was vandalized in 2003. So all the gold and silver and stonework on it is from the original. It's a very um, iconic instrument. We did get a lot of help from the Baghdad Museum. Uh, Dr. Lamy Galani helped because before we could really get going on the project, we had to have some pictures. And she sent me that picture there of, of the lyre and we used that to copy it pretty faithfully. I think you have to remember that uh, the curators of the museum were, uh, they knew that their artifacts were at risk and so that they were um, busy hiding them as far as possible. So they, a lot of them disappeared. And although we, we thought at the time that the gold lyre had been vandalized, uh, lots of the gold, I think, was found again um, in the car park, scattered around when they'd taken the, um, the arms off it. And the gold bull's head was found in the National Bank of Iraq uh, four or five years later under the name of Mr. S. Hussein. Oh, you described all the silver and all these different components. And how, how, does, how does one uh, you know, acquire all of this for... Uh, uh, you know, for, for a project that you're going to do yourself. And I just can't even imagine how you- People were very generous with their time. We never really paid for anything. People were very, very generous with, with everything that they did. They liked the idea. And um, we, were, we had a lot of help from all quarters, but we began with the wood. We needed a core of this instrument. I spoke to a friend of mine who's an Iraqi, Dr. Jalili, who was the National Association of British Arabs, and he said, look, if you're going to do it, Andy, do it properly. Uh, use authentic materials. Get the right materials. Do it absolutely correctly. I'll find you this wood. I will get the wood for you. You need cedar woods from Iraq. I thought this was actually very ambitious for him to say that, but about um, perhaps six weeks later, I got a call from Iraq on my kitchen table, I thought, how do I get the wood back from, um, from Iraq? So I called the local RAF station, who dismissed it out of hand pretty much, um, <laughs> saying that they had a war on their hands. But it was the only way I could possibly get the wood here. Uh, and in the end, he said, well, I'd put it to the chaps on the ground um, and told not to ask any questions. They called it Operation Plank. Uh, about Two weeks later, he called me up and said, look, the chaps have gone in. They've gone in to get your wood. They brought it over to the airport in Baghdad. It's in Bryce Norton. It came on uh, overnight. It's in front of me on my desk in Stamford. They said, would it be OK if we asked the BBC? And we all stood there. Um, the BBC, the, the, the army chaps, they came and saluted. Dr. Jalili from Iraq was there with me. He was in tears. And I suddenly realized what a wonderful, wonderful gesture this was, that somebody had taken a risk for some crazy enthusiasts in Britain to make a, wow. a new liar um, over here. It was very touching, I have to say. So they call it the gold liar of Ur, though. That <laughs> seems uh, like... You know, did you just go down to the bank and 
say <laughs> stand and deliver or <laughs> well, how do you get that much gold very yeah very very good a great donation the question is often asked um how authentic did we recreate this liar well we took the view that you can really do things absolutely authentically but it may be taking you 20 years to do it and we we had to get a move on we took a we took a decision we tried our best of course we have failed in in many ways we have used modern tools to build this we have used planers we probably we've used glue for um, modern glues for the frame um, but against that we have tried to use um, uh, authentic means as far as possible we've used 0.15 24 karat gold as it was in the original um, we've used the correct um, bitumen and we've 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 made the shells in in the absolute correct way um, cutting it out by hand as they still do in the world today going to Italy to make these so um, it's not completely authentic I ha we have to be honest we were all feeling our way with the making of this instrument and um, as I can't emphasize enough as Andy has said that everybody donated their time and uh, totally voluntarily so not only the materials but the workmanship that went into this uh, was all done by volunteers this is uh, Jonathan Letcher um, who is an instrument maker and he had never made a lyre before he had made harps before and here he is in his workshop and he's got the uh, sound box and one of the arms of the lyre and he was very very nervous about when putting the second arm on and then the yoke across he was afraid that when the strings were added and tightened up that the whole thing might fly to pieces uh, because of the tension of the strings very fortunately of course it didn't this is the lucky lady melanie a student at west dean college in chichester we asked them if any of their students would be interested in a very unusual project and uh, of course they were these were postgraduate students and they were very very excited indeed to be working with sheets of gold this is the making of the bull's head this was an enormously complicated exercise uh, the exploded view shows you how many pieces it was the wooden core was made by one of the tutors at Westin, and then an American student called Daniel made it his, um, I think, virtually one year's project to cover the wood with very, very thin sheets of gold. He did, of course, do it all in uh, foil, first of all, and then he did it in pewter um, before he took the scissors to the gold. The burnishing of it, the pressing down of the gold onto the um, beard and onto the forehead was enormously um, complex. And they are not uh, just a straightforward cone. And of course, left and right, the ears, the, um, the beard, everything, it was all totally different. Um, and it took him a great deal of time to create such a perfect replica of the gold bull's head. The lapis lazuli and mother of pearl eyes were a project for another student and again took 
and a huge amount of time. Lapis lazuli is a very, very fragile material. They're kind of like little diamond shapes uh, with a, a ring of white, mother of pearl, and a little blue disc in the middle. And then it was all assembled together. We should say that the mother of pearl came from the Persian Gulf, which is probably where it came from for the original Iraqi instrument, and um, arrived in uh, Andy's house still with seaweed attached to it and um, smelling to high heaven. Uh, <laughs> so we had some adventurous times in acquiring the, the materials. Um, this, this was the Queen's goldsmith, Andy, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Simon, yes, Simon. Lovely, lovely work you did. And, um... one, of the, one of the things that um, he was very upset about, because we wanted it, uh, the work completed in an authentic way, um, we asked him to use little silver pins, little silver nails to nail it on, which is how it was done um, originally, of course. Uh, and it rather went against the grain, I think, to tap silver nails through this um, 22 karat gold. He, he thought it was rather sacrilegious. Uh, modern times, of course, it would all be done with some amazing adhesive, I suppose. But we, we really did persist with the um, authenticity of, uh, of the materials. How about the strings? What uh, what were the strings made of, and back then, and what are these strings made of? Well, in the grave, in the uh, in the archaeology, in the dig, there was only a, a pattern left on the ground. There was nothing left at all. And the British Museum said it wasn't a metallic thing. It was probably organic, and it was probably um, gut like this. So we've used we've used gut. It could have been tendon. It could have been hair, skin. And we've used eight strings, and there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, firstly, at the bottom of the decoration in the Baghdad picture, there is eight little um, black lines in the decoration, which split up the, um, the patterns. And it's just where you'd expect the strings to enter the instrument. So somehow that number eight is pretty significant. The other thing is that the, the number of strings when you look back at the bull's head, it's got eight, eight strands. It's got eight strands to its beard. Very odd. Eight strands of three. That may be, uh, give us the, the idea of the, the number of strings that these instruments had. But lyres can have anything from, from three to 11 or 12 strings. There's quite a few um, different numbers of strings have been found in the world. And you can see the, uh, the bridge, which is there, mm -hmm. which is made of pieces of papyrus. <clears throat> um, we had a lot of assistance from a Kenyan lyre player called Ayub Ogada, who um, uh, played his own lyre. And he said he showed us how to um, operate the tuning pegs, and he also made suggestions about what may, may have been used as a bridge. Uh, it has to be said that now when we play the lyre, we mostly have um, a wooden bridge, um, more like a modern instrument, but this is probably the most likely thing that they had at the time. It's attached in this particular instance with bitumen and all the decoration which you can see um, around the lyre, blue, pink 
and white. The pink is pink limestone, which is only found in the mountains of northern Iraq. And again, there was a very funny story attached as to how we obtained this authentic material. Um, we put out a message through various contacts and a taxi driver was sent from Mosul up into the mountains to get a large block of pink rock and bring it back. And it came by a devious route through Hamburg and then to us here in the UK. And then I have to say, we did use sophisticated cutting instruments in order to cut it up into little thin sheets and little thin sticks uh, to put it all around the decoration of the, um, of the lyre. And very you can see a little, a, a bit of a close-up of it there. And um, there you can see um, Andy sticking it on with <laughs> bitumen, with, um, which is again, a, a very interesting uh, adhesive. We were told that lumps of bitumen float down the rivers Tigris and Euphrates. And uh, you can pick it out. Bitumen, as you probably know, is a very tarry, uh, sticky substance. And again, somebody sent us a block of bitumen over from Iraq, um, absolutely stinking to high heaven, although being wrapped in 17 polythene bags and <laughs> sent over with a courier via Dubai, I believe. And you mix it with wax and it makes a very effective, um, but very primitive adhesive. The other thing which you can see perhaps quite well on this picture are the tuning pegs which mm -hmm. have wraps on them. The string goes round the, round the yoke at the top. And they were made of cedar wood, covered in silver, and a rather complex twisting mechanism using bits of leather to stop it from slipping around the yoke, and then a kind of figure of eight method with hemp string attached to the gut strings twisted round and round, and then you can tighten them or slacken them by twisting them around the top of the lyre. And it's held on by its own tension. So it's tuned up with the levers, which is the way that it's, um, that these, these instruments are still tuned today in Kenya, um, Somalia, Egypt, that sort of area. So we've kept it mm -hmm. to, that, to that style. Building in other problems for us, I have to say, it's it's not an easy way to tune it. And so perhaps there are there were other things that went on um, <clears throat> back then to make it easier. But in today's modern perfect pitch um, requirements, it's pretty hard to tune. Professor Ricardo Eichmann at the Freie Universität in, in Berlin had a wonderful conversation with us and said, you know, really, um, that we don't know how these things are tuned. And so you can tune it how you like, which is very, very liberating. Tuning is a constant worry. It's, um, if, if you're at all anxious, it gives you plenty to worry about while you're sitting there. Because if you, if you really go for it, then it's gonna pull it out of tune if you're not careful. In the years since its recreation, the lyre has been played by a number of performers in the ensemble. Mark Harmer was one of the many performers who played the lyre in concert and on recordings. Bill Taylor was the first to play it, accompanying spoken word poetry recited by Jennifer Sturdy. African lyre player Ayu Bogata performed with the lyre on stage at the African Calling Concert. Andy Lowings played both live and on the ensemble's key recordings and was joined on the BBC Radio 3 broadcast and in the Union Chapel concert with Steph Connor accompanying on vocals.
it's kind of a hair-raising experience. It is. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, to, you know, to, to, to play these uh, these ancient instruments and uh, which we don't have the same kind of knack for manipulating as people would have done in the ancient world. Um, I think, you know, we can't say that they're that they're difficult to tune and they go out of tune because they're not as sophisticated in their mechanisms as modern instruments. So I think it's probably more the case that we just don't know how to use them and we don't have the requisite expertise um, because we're not part of the practice in which they existed. Um, but uh, it, it was also hair raising to, to sing with them because they would wander throughout the course of a performance and because <laughs> gut is such a malleable substance compared with the kind of you know nile gut or nylon or metal that we typically play on today and uh, and again because of the the, the mechanisms and sometimes uh, when we when we tried playing these things live <laughs> mark or andy whoever was playing the instrument would start and then i just look over and kind of shake my head <laughs> and we'd stop and everything would have to be retuned <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a living thing, really. You know, it's a, the harp is is even the a modern harp is wood and um, guts construction. This particular one, but this thing is is a whole new level. You know, it, it has eyes as well. But you know, it's a it's a living object almost, um, and it's gonna you know you have to treat it carefully, and it's gonna hopefully be nice to you. Yeah, it may bless your performance with the <laughs> tuning that you have in mind, or it may curse your performance with an undesirable tuning. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a lovely proverb, doesn't it? Join us for our next podcast when we talk with members of the Lyre Ensemble and explore the aspects of performance using this instrument and of creating new music on the ancient Lyre. For over 100 years, the OI has been a leading research center for the study of ancient Middle Eastern civilizations. Join us in uncovering the past and learn about the beginnings of our lives as humans together. Become a member by visiting oi.uchicago.edu slash member.